Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 132 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today we're going to talk about what are some of the challenges that women and their partners who are in a relationship with uh, with those women who are struggling with kind of sexual desires and various sexual challenges, and more specifically, FSIAD, which is the female sexual interest arousal disorder, are facing. I'm super excited to have Dr. Natalie Rosen on her show. She did tons of wonderful research studies and couples who are struggling with sexual dysfunctions, and she shares some of her findings and of her studies in the in this interview with us. Dr. Natalie Rosen is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Daly House uh, University in Halifax. Her research interests focus on understanding how individuals and especially couples cope with sexual problems or changes to their sexual relationship, including low sexual desire. She is an associate editor of the Journal of Archives of Sexual Behavior and has published over 70 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters on sexual relationships. She also has a private practice. She's exclusively worked with couples on sex and couple therapy. You can find a link to her website in our show notes. And without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Natalie Rosen. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am excited and honored to have Dr. Natalie Rosen on our show today. Dr. Natalie, welcome to our show. Hi. I am so excited to have you on the show because you have done all this exciting research around different things around sexuality and women's and men's relationship as it comes to sex. And unfortunately, as, as you probably know, that we don't have uh, many labs focusing on these areas of research. So we're very grateful for your work. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. Uh, one of the research articles that you published was talking about female sexual interest arousal disorder. Can you tell us a little bit about this disorder? Sure. So female sexual interest arousal disorder, FSIAD, is actually a new diagnosis in the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. And it's a combination now of what was previously known as hypoactive sexual desire disorder and female sexual arousal disorder. And those two are no longer in the DSM. And we have this new diagnostic entity, FSIAD, which is somewhat of a combination of the two. It reflects both of them. So women diagnosed with FSAD endorse three or more symptoms relating to low desire or low, little sort of thinking about um, sex, not initiating sex. Those ones kind of tap into the desire side. And then three of the other symptoms relate to a lack of pleasure during sex or not being sort of responsive to cues related to sex 
or having some kind of difficulties with physical arousal. So for the diagnosis, though, women only need to endorse three or more of the symptoms. So they can still sort of more tap into the desire side or more tap into the arousal side. And it has to be for at least six months and accompanied by significant distress. How interesting. So if there's no distress, then it's not a fire. That's right. Yeah. So distress is absolutely a key, a key part of it. Lots of people experience, you know, ebbs and flows in the desire and oftentimes for really, you know, reasonable reasons why women might not be interested in as interested in sex right now. So they might have just had a baby or there might be some kind of health crisis and that they're dealing with or their partner lost their job or, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why there might be a period of time where a woman is not feeling that interest in sex. And so in that context, she might not be that distressed by it. It might not be causing problems for herself or for her relationship. And in those circumstances, no, it would not be SIAD. And I'm so glad that you talked about this and you're normalizing it because our sexuality does not exist in vacuum. So, of Mm -hmm. course, if we just had a child or if you're having like acute depression or mood challenges or anything in the context of relationship, that can impact our sexuality. So Mm -hmm. this is not necessarily a disorder in those cases. Exactly. And actually, there's some other, you know, great research out there that says it's actually more normal to experience kind of ebbs and flows in your desire over time in your relationship than to systematically kind of maintain high desire. That's not really what it looks like in most sort of long term couples. And that's, I think, fantastic to kind of mention and talk about it. Thank you for that point, because I feel like sometimes people feel they are kind of like the the expectation from media and all this thing that they're reading is like they Mm got to be a sex machine all the time and they got to be on. So as as you said, it's normal to have these ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. How common is FSIAD though? So, so you, you're I'm asking curious about the prevalence. Yes. Oh, how common? Sorry, I got, I didn't hear that question <laughs> properly. Yeah. So it, it's kind of tricky actually to estimate right now because it is a new diagnosis, right? So we don't have a lot of population-based estimates uh, yet, since it only sort of came out as an entity in two, 2013. But if we look at you know estimates of the previous diagnoses of HSDD and and FSAD. We typically think that it's around 7 to 23% of the general population. And that's a bit of a range there. But as I said, I think that, you know, over the next few years, we'll get a better sense of the prevalence. But I expect it's going to be lower than the previous diagnosis of HSDD, which is the low desire diagnosis. And that's because uh, there is a bit of evidence that came out some of Dr. Laurie Brado's work recently that suggests that women, when they sort of compared women who meet the criteria for both, that the women with FSIAD tended to endorse more severe symptoms than the previous diagnosis of HSDD. So the prevalence somewhere in the 7 to 23%, potentially a bit on the lower end. And it's significant. It sounds like 7 to 23 is a huge kind of range of people kind of struggling with this. And it's great that there are kind of grants and research around, but 
what people can do for treatment. But I, what I specifically loved about your research that you looked at the impact of this diagnosis and the partners. Yes. And I see like in my practice all the time when couples coming in and one person is struggling with something, more or less in, at least I would say like in most of the cases, it's impacting their uh, mm-hmm. partners. So tell us yeah. how does this diagnosis of FSIAD is that impacting the partners? Yeah. Yeah, and I would actually argue, you know, I totally agree with you. I see this clinically as well in my private practice that, you know, in the context of sexuality, where two people, you know, sex is typically or often happening between the two people, even more so than other problems, other potential mental health problems, both members of the couple are impacted. And traditionally, including in in desire, but in other areas of sexual dysfunction as well, we've tended to focus on just the person with the problem. Um, Like it's their problem and they're the one who's supposed to get treatment for it. I know clinically, you know, sex therapists often see both members of the couple, but certainly in research, we haven't really known a lot about these relationship dynamics because there's been this this focus on just the person with the diagnosis. And that's really what's been driving my research. When I looked at sort of the literature and the state of things in, in clinically low desired women, I was just shocked at how little attention there was to the partner and sort of the relationship dynamics and the impacts for the partner. So that's that was really what led to this first study. And, and what we saw, again, not surprisingly, given you know your own experience as well, was that the partners were suffering as well. So they were reporting lower sexual satisfaction, higher sexual distress, poor sexual communication compared to partners of women's we could we could collected also a control sample where we specifically screened for couples that were not having any kind of sexual dysfunction and those control partner you know were doing much better and then among the men in the sample because we did have same-sex couples as well but when we looked at just the the male partners they were reporting more difficulties with orgasm or erectile difficulties lower satisfaction with intercourse compared to these control partners. That is fascinating. How was it uh, similar or different as same-sex couples? Yeah, so with the same-sex couples, we only had nine. So it's really not a big enough sample for us to have been able to compare though the, the female partners to know, you know, whether they were seeing similar difficulties. I don't think there's any reason to expect that they wouldn't. Like I would imagine that female partners of women with FSIAD are also less satisfied and more distressed than part, female partners of women who don't have this problem. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then my background is in the system kind of like the And I can totally see like when there's a challenge and a relationship part of Mm -hmm. the system that impacts the kind of the entire couples and the family and all of those connected. So I was kind of curious to see that uh, what are some of the possible connections that you made Mm -hmm. between these women and their partners, lower sexual and relationship well-being? Yeah. And before we get to that, actually, I forgot to mention one thing that I think is re- think was really interesting that I wanted to say is that the, even though the partners were reporting this lower sexual satisfaction and these sexual function difficulties, their actual level of sexual desire did not differ from the controls. Huh. So they experienced all these consequences, but they were still having desire for sex with, the, with their female partner at the same level as these control couples. So one of the things that that suggested to, to us was that these couples are probably dealing with a larger desire discrepancy mm-hmm. than other couples. And desire discrepancy also has negative implications for couples and is a really common, you know, presenting problem for sex therapy. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's such an important point that you mentioned. And tell us, is it that, and I know that in the research, uh, you might have not looked at it, but I'm kind of curious about your clinical experience mm-hmm. with it, that do, does this couple usually had a closer baseline and then because of this FSIA, the discrepancy mm-hmm. got worse or mm-hmm. there always been this huge gap? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I'm just thinking, we don't know that from research, but clinically, because I do see a lot of these couples and, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts as well. But I, typically when I see the couples that have, where they're complaining about a desire discrepancy where the woman has lower desire, they often talk about how there was always a discrepancy there, that she, her desire was never like quite at the same place as her partner's. Um, and maybe it's gotten worse over time. That's what I tend to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, I definitely agree with you. And also, there's this tiny part of the population that I see at times they're coming in because the this discrepancy grew significantly because of like aging or mm-hmm. because of the medical procedure that they had. But you're right, usually yeah. that's kids, right? Kids for sure. Yeah, that's the <laughs> that's biggest one I think. Yes, yeah. that people get shocked how their sexuality yeah. absolutely kind of yeah. changes afterward. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so I think that that could be part of it. But usually you're right that there is when there's a discrepancy there, that's been in the relationship yeah. discrepancy like yeah. from the yeah. beginning. Right. So coming back to your question about the possible connections, like how could the woman who has a side, how is that going to affect her partner? Is that what your question was? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I actually think there's a number of different ways that it, that, that could like um, – that this could affect the partner. So one of the ones that sort of I, that kind of fits with theory around how people develop sexual problems is the possibility that like the partner may start to become kind of either preoccupied with or just more focused on signals or signs from the woman that maybe she's not interested in sex or um, not feeling feeling aroused during sex. And that becomes really distracting for them. It draws their attention away from any potential pleasurable sensations that they're having and enhances their own anxiety. And so then sort of that idea of performance anxiety goes up and then, and then that can link to difficulties with uh, their own erectile functioning and their own orgasm and, and satisfaction. So that's one thought about how, how the partner is impacted. Another piece that's sort of in line with that is is really just this idea that I think the partners are kind of picking up on cues from the woman. So if the partner thinks that, you know, she might just be having sex to please him or her, or, um, you know, they're doing it just, you know, not because they're that interested in having sex, but for these other sort of reasons to avoid a fight or this kind of thing, then the partners kind of pick up on that. And that also interferes with their satisfaction. And those are called what we know, what we know are called more avoidance oriented goals for having sex. So having sex to sort of avoid some kind of negative relationship outcome. And what we we know from some of our some of my other research and research by others is that partners like are able to sense that more avoidance oriented reasons for having sex and that that links to their lower sexual relationship satisfaction. Well, also, I was kind of very curious about the communication piece. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine that in the bedroom, if you feel and see that your partner is not into it, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. certainly can take a toll on your excitement. But how is that kind of like being in that dynamic impact mm-hmm. your communication? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what happens sometimes for some couples is that they might start to avoid talking about the problem because it has all these negative emotions that it kind of provokes in them. Or what I often see as well, or we might 
here is that partners don't want to feel like they're pressuring the woman to have sex. They don't want to be uh, seen as kind of, you know, obligating them or putting pressure on them. So they start to avoid or pull back from initiating. And they also don't want to feel rejected. They don't want to like that feeling and that's sort of those negative emotions, whether it's guilt or, or, or pressure or feeling, you know, rejected by your partner makes you feel bad. Those can all sort of like lead to the couple and then the woman's also experiencing all these negative emotions and guilt and et cetera, that they start to avoid talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that avoidance can really reinforce those patterns because people tend to avoid things that are bad. Right. So and then so why would they avoid something that's good? So and then that avoidance just kind of reinforces forces this idea that this is a massive problem and that they can't handle it. And at times I feel that people, they don't know there's solutions out there. So mm-hmm. they have this kind of like dead end conversation that why don't you desire me? Why don't mm-hmm. you initiate sex? And the partner say like, I just don't. And then they don't know where to go from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think research like yours and I think like sex therapists that there are kind of familiar with kind of treatments of this dysfunctions can be very helpful tools. Exactly. And it's also, I I think it's about, they don't know where to go. And they also, it feels very threatening for the couple because, you know, the idea that is, you know, out there for sure in the media is that sex is really important to couple relationships. So when your sex life's not going that well, it can feel like a, a big threat to the relationship. And that also triggers a lot of negative emotions. And again, makes you not want to deal with it and not talk about it. Right. And I think this can kind of transition to the next question Mm -hmm. that I want to understand that what are some of the recommendations that you have for couples who have like interpersonal challenges and sexual Mm -hmm. challenges in the context of of SIAT? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is just tapping into exactly what you you just um, mentioned, which is that they don't have to be on their own about this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that they don't if they don't know what to do, that there is professional help available uh, with with sex therapists and clinical psychologists with experience in sex therapy uh, to help them navigate and learn new ways of either uh, reinforcing or stimulating their desire as a couple, like not just that it's the woman's problem that she needs to do something about her desire, but it's also about the patterns that they've started to engage in together that are not, you know, allowing them to connect in this way. So the first, you know, kind of recommendation is that there is professional help, particularly if they're distressed, right? So if they're not distressed and that's not a problem for them, then they might not need help. But if one or both members are feeling like this is causing a lot of conflict and they're upset about it, then they should go together as a couple. That's the first recommendation kind of following from that and this is an easy one that I suggest to you know everyone who contacts me because I have a bit of a wait list as I'm sure you do as well is like you know what can I do right away they want help and they're on the wait list is that there's actually some really excellent books out there self-help books that they can start out with and start reading and this can be really helpful for a couple reasons one is that it starts to open up the conversation Mm -hmm. especially if they've been avoiding talking about it so it's it gives couples sort of a language and a shared purpose in that they're both reading potentially the same book and they can have conversations about it and it also makes sure that you know they're kind of on the same page so the two books that i tend to recommend one and these might even be people you've spoken with before <laughs> is um come as you are by oh, emily Mikowski. Yes. you, you had her on this show mm-hmm. had her on the show so yeah. emily's amazing and her book is amazing mm-hmm. um and it's a great start and it's it's fairly recent too so it's really up to date and that book is a, a real go-to for me in terms of women's sexual desire and arousal and i think it's really useful for the partner to read it as well and there's nice little exercises and little mm-hmm. things to do in there as well 
The other one is uh, Dr. Lori Brado's recent book. I love book. her too. She was um, in the podcast too. And like, yeah. great, great book, great book. Exactly. Yes. So mindful sex. And that mm-hmm. one is, you know, integrating, as you know, um, concepts of mindfulness and applying it to sexuality, which, is, which can be really useful too. So that's like often a starting point, especially for couples that might take them a while to get in for help. That something that they could be doing at home. And again, really encouraging both members of the couple like do some of the reading and, and then they can talk about it or look at some of the couple exercises or individual exercises that are in there. The other piece that I think, uh, the other recommendation, and this comes from a study with our couples that we that is not quite out, it's accepted for publication, but it's not out yet. So I can give you a sneak preview. Is <laughs> <laughs> talking about this um, concept of self-expansion in couples. Hmm. So self-expansion has to do with broadening your sense of self. So engaging, engaging in a novel, interesting, exciting new activity with your partner, mm. something that allows you to maybe see your partner in a new light in a way that you never really saw them before. It makes you feel like you're learning something new together. And at the same time, because you're doing this activity together, you're, there's an intimacy component too, because it's shared. So what we, what we found is that couples where the woman has a sciad are actually reporting lower levels of self-expansion in their relationship. So they're not engaging in this type of activities or having these experiences with their partner to as great an extent as the control women. However, when women reported higher self-expansion, it was linked to their higher desire and sexual satisfaction. So let me tell you, give you some examples of what I mean by self-expansion. So self-expansion would be, uh, some examples might be taking a a new class together. So maybe signing up for dance class or a cooking class or a lecture, going to a lecture where they hear some new and interesting ideas. Another example would be visiting a, a new site, a new city together or exploring, you know, going on a new hike or a hike that you've never done before, sort of challenging yourself physically together would be another example. So the idea is really about finding a shared activity that's new, that's introducing hmm. something novel and challenging that you're doing together with your partner. And uh, what we're seeing is that this idea of self-expansion might be really beneficial for women's desire. That's fantastic. And I kind kind of congruent with what I see in my <laughs> practice mm-hmm. because yep. sometimes people coming in and it seems like they are living in this very kind of rigid routine. And I know it could be part of being an adult, but yeah. I think that that can kind of like create this sense of expectancy that I know what my partner is thinking. Exactly. I know what she's feeling, yeah. he's feeling. So yeah. there's no, not, not necessarily an element of novelty. And exactly. I love that, that what yeah. you talked about that, like maybe doing something that's a shared interest and shared activity that can kind of help people with seeing yeah. each other in a different yeah. light. Yeah, but they get confused. And so you have to, I always have to clarify, it's not the same thing as going to see a movie together. It's not the same thing as like watching your favorite TV show, because that's what you're already doing, right? That's what you're already doing together. And you're going to be sitting there beside your partner, and they're going to, and you've already seen them sit there, sit, sit and watch that movie together, right? That's not like showing you a new perspective. And it's not like broadening your sense of self. It's very different than let's say, going to see an art exhibit that that when you never go to see art exhibits before, and it makes you sort of have these conversations you've never had before you see your partner appreciating something 
that, you know, you didn't really realize they would like have this interest in Picasso or whatever it might be, but oh, like you're learning something new and you're sharing that, that experience. That's self-expansion. It's not self-expansion to do the sort of same usual <laughs> right. things, right? Right, more of the same. Yes, yeah, yes exactly. that makes sense. Yeah, and it's hard for them to figure out what that might look like. And it, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be buying a plane ticket to New York City, especially if you don't have a lot of money, right? But that it's sort of trying to figure out what that could look like within the context of your life. I guess the other question that I have that you may or may not kind of like looked into it, does it matter if a self-expansion is in the context of sexual things or mm. if it's just kind of like an everyday thing that people are doing that they are yeah. like equally kind of like impactful? Yeah, yeah. So I get that question a lot. And in our study, we did not look at it like particularly in a sexual context. So we did not look at, you know, couples who were like more experimental or doing more variety in their sex lives. We just looked at this idea, this more general concept of like shared self-expansion in their relationships outside of the bedroom. It's possible that some people could have interpreted some of the questions to also in the bedroom, but that's not really what we looked at. We know that generally from other areas, and other research that like more flexibility in the bedroom, a little bit of experimentation, that these things tend to be good for people's sex lives. And from some of the work of um, Peggy Kleinplatz, who's also Canadian, who does work on sort of optimal sexuality, and she's interviewed people who really like have these fantastic sex lives. Um, and in her research, this idea of, you know, being open to trying new things and experimental, like this is all, and, and you know, respectful at the same time, those are things that can contribute to, you know, really satisfying sex lives. But in our case, I don't think it has to be about that. And I think that's very positive as well, because sometimes when people have sexual challenges, like FSIAD or any other sexual challenges, the last thing they want to do is kind of more things around sex. Yes, exactly. So I think like doing (laughs) new things that are not necessarily sexual might give them more motivation to kind of explore things. And the example I also like to give as sort of really showing what self-expansion looks like is I try and I say to, say to couples sometimes, you know, have you ever seen your partner at work, like doing something that they really excel in? We don't really have that many opportunities to like see our partner, whether they're a lawyer or they're, or they're a teacher or whatever they are. Like if let's say they're a teacher in the classroom, like, you know, we're not in the classroom with them. But if you do get, when you do get that peek into like, because you saw a piece of your, your partner like receiving an award or performing in some way, it's like you feel that spark of like, yeah, like that's a piece of them that like, I don't really get exposed to, but it kind of, yeah, they're sexy up there given that talk. And they, it mm-hmm. sort of sparks that desire to see your partner in their element and challenging themselves. That's kind of a component of self-expansion as well as like seeing your partner do something, challenge themselves or excel at something that you don't, you don't necessarily see in your day-to-day life. I love that. Sounds like such a novel and exciting new findings that you had in the article. So I definitely want to, I can't wait to read it. So I noticed that we are toward the end of our time and mm-hmm. I want to people know where they can do, they can find your research studies and about your private practice, because I sure. know that you've, like you've studied this range of different things around sex and sexuality. So tell us a little bit about your kind of research and also the private practice. 
Sure. So um, generally, you know, all of my research, what I'm most interested in is couples and how couples together navigate sexual problems. So there's this SI at work, but I've also been working for a really long time with couples where the woman experiences pain during sex. And then the other area that I'm really interested in is the transition to parenthood, which is all fraught with all sorts of new sexual and relationship challenges and how couples navigate that transition, who sort of bounces back. And that's really been informed by my clinical research, as I mentioned before, I do see a lot of couples where, who see that sort of having their first kid be quite a turning point in their sex lives, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, even three, five years later, they're really struggling to get back their, their feelings of desire and satisfaction. So I also do work in that area. And I also have some new research around couples who are coping with fertility issues as mm-hmm. well, which is, again, an, a big sort of burden and, and challenge and introduces these new components about why you're having sex, with the reproductive, more of a reproductive focus. So any of those sort of sexual challenges and, and problems is, is an area I'm interested in. And they can go, people can go to my website, which is natalieorosen.com to read about some of the past research and current research. We have links to a lot of the paper research articles on there. There's also a link to my private practice, which is quite small because I do spend the majority of my time with research, but I have a very small private practice here in Halifax, um, working with couples uh, around issues of sexual dysfunction and problems. And then the last thing I'll just mention is that even though we've talked a lot about FSIAD today, in the DSM, there still is the equivalent diagnosis of a hypoactive sexual desire disorder for men, so male men who are struggling with low desire, which we have been slowly, because it is, <laughs> it's not as common, and I think there's a number of societal barriers as well to sort of men coming forward with this problem. But we are interested in working with those couples as well and collecting some data on how they are coping and managing it and sort of the relationship dynamics when it's the man who has low desire, both same-sex couples and mixed-sex couples. So that one in particular particular, if any of your listeners are, you know, struggling with that problem or interested in contributing to research, they can go to the website and get in touch with us because we'd love to hear from them. Excellent, excellent. And I'm, I'm so glad that you are doing that research because mm-hmm. I, I oftentimes talk about low desire in women. And a few weeks ago, I got this email from one of our listeners that she was talking about, you know, in my relationship, it's opposite. And my mm-hmm. partner, who is a male, is not doesn't have mm-hmm. that much desire. And that's wonderful that you're doing that research. So I encourage mm-hmm. our listeners that definitely check out and contact you guys if they're interested to be part yeah. of it. That would be great. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for being on the show. This was absolutely our pleasure to have you here. And we cannot wait to hear about your future research. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Natalie Rosen. I love that she talked about this concept of self-expansion. And I often talk to my clients about the benefit of them trying something exciting together or new together inside the bedroom or outside the bedroom. This is something I personally incorporate in, in life because at time, at least based on my clinical experience, I see that people are kind of like overestimating how much they know their partner. They kind of like paint this image of the partner in a kind of one-dimensional way, which might get them, might get in the way of kind of experiencing sexual excitement toward that partner. So if you're 
doing something new and kind of like see things from different lenses that can help with your sexuality. And this is uh, my husband and I, we do lots of new, exciting things together, like physical activities and traveling. And I, I find that that's very helpful for my relationship. So I encourage you guys to look into it as well. The other thing is if you are struggling with sexual interest issues or sexual dysfunctions, and that's something that you guys want to work on and you live in California, uh, you can work with us. My practice, it's me and another therapist who's, who works with people who are struggling with sexual dysfunctions. So we would be happy to help you. You can come into our office in LA if you live in LA and also we provide uh, video counseling. So we would be happy to help you. And if we are not good, good fit for what you're looking for, we can always connect you to our colleagues locally. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this show. If you like the show, please consider sharing it with your friends so we can reach a broader audience and uh, we would really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.